Welcome to the Cars Deep and Wide podcast. This is episode 14 with Tom Schreiner. This past November, we had the great privilege in Cars Church to welcome into our midst for our annual theology conference, Dr. Tom Schreiner, along with his wife, Diane. Tom is a professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He is truly one of the eminent Pauline scholars in the world, and he's done extensive research and writing on gender. And for this year's conference, we entitled it Different by Design, and we looked at how God has made men and women equal in dignity and worth, but different in role and function. I hope you'll enjoy this third session with Tom as he talks about how we are made different by design in the church. Today, this afternoon, I want to talk about the role of women in the church in a really broad way. So, you know, really looking at it, we're not going to look just at a single passage. So... Um, we got to go fast, you know? So, you know, lots of times for questions, but we have to go fast in the sense where we're looking at uh, the whole of the Bible. What I'm defending here is I'm, I'm defending what I call the historic view of the church. What do I mean by the historic view? I think the historic view of the church is that women, women cannot, which is a very negative word to our culture, right? Women cannot function as pastors, elders, and overseers. So, so I think that's the historic view, and, and I want to defend that by looking, trying to take into account quickly and briefly the whole of the biblical revelation. So here we go. Happy to hear questions afterwards. The historic view is not necessarily right just because it's the historic view. Right? A, a historic view can be wrong. Finally, we believe as Protestants over against Roman Catholics and sola scriptura. We believe scripture is the final authority. On the other hand, C.S. Lewis warned us of chronological snobbery. And that is the opposite error that what is old is probably false and what is new is probably true. We are prone, I think, in our culture today to value what is new, not what is old. So I want to step back a moment and think of, you know, a lot of different things to say today, but I want to think about hermeneutics, which means, you know, how to interpret the scriptures. And and, and I want to think of two passages, Galatians 3, 28, there is... is, uh, uh, neither male nor female, Paul says other things in that verse, you're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And then 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. How do we put those two texts together? There's neither male nor female. I don't permit a, you're all one in Christ. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. What evangelical feminists say, that's not my view, you probably know that, what evangelical feminists say is that the clear text is Galatians 3.28. That text is clear. 
There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. The text in 1 Timothy 2.12, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, they argue, that's an unclear text. What's the hermeneutical rule? The clear text takes precedence over the unclear text. That is, I agree with that hermeneutical rule. The clear text takes precedence over the unclear text. However, what I'm arguing today is that 1 Timothy 2.12 is not unclear. <laughs> that's, that's the difference, right? So is it an unclear text or not? That's, that's the very question. Okay, so that's just a prefatory word. Now let's think about males and females generally. Just some, some quick points here. First, let's think about equality. Equality. Equality is a very tricky word. And it's used in different ways, but I think we can all agree on the following points. First, both males and females are equally made in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God made man in the image of God. He made them male and female. He made them. Both male and female are equally created in the image of God. Now, I'd love to talk about what the image of God is and talk about that, but we don't have time for that, okay? Another time, I'm sure Kevin's taught about that and others. But, but it is not the case, the historic view is not arguing that men are in the image of God and, 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 and females are not, okay? But they're equally made in God's image. Secondly, both males and females have equal access to salvation, Both males and females have equal access to salvation. That's Galatians 3.28 again. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither a male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. What's the context of that statement? Have you heard this little statement? A text without a context is only a pretext. I like that little rhyming there, right? A text without a context is only a pretext. The context in Galatians 3 is this, what, what must one observe the law and be circumcised to be a child of Abraham? So the context, I would argue, is equal access to salvation for all people. That is not, if we read that rightly, Paul is not saying, most emphatically not saying, that there's no such thing as male or female at all. Of course, that would open up the door, wouldn't it, to homosexuality, and some want to do that with such a text, but, but we have equal access to salvation. I think that's what that text teaches. Thirdly, both males and females are equally heirs of the grace of life. 1 Peter 3, 7, both husbands and wives are co-heirs of the grace of life. I take it that's referring to our eschatological End time, what does eschatological mean? Our end time destiny. We share an equal destiny. We're equally made in God's image. We have equal access to salvation. We have the same destiny as the children of God. So the historic view does not deny equality. Females are equal in dignity and value and worth. I would suggest then that role, the differences in role are limited to this present evil age in which we live. 
In other words, there are some people who believe the contrary, but I don't think there's good evidence for it. I don't think those differences in role continue throughout all eternity. I think those differences in role are limited to this present evil age. So equality, very important. Another, another point I want to make. Sometimes people say, do you think women can be ordained? Do you think women can be ordained? Ordination, I would suggest, is not the best term to use. What, what, do, what do people mean by ordination? That, that, isn't, that isn't the typical scriptural way of talking about the matter. So what I want to ask is something more specific. Can women serve, I think this is more biblically rooted, can women serve as elders, overseers, and pastors? So if you're talking about ordination, as long as you mean can they be appointed to be elders, overseers, and pastors, then that's a good question. But just to say, can women be ordained, that's vague. Now, I'm I'm arguing here that elders, overseers, and pastors are three different ways of describing the same office. I'm not talking about three different offices. To be an elder is to be an overseer and to be a pastor. When we came into our church in 2001, we merged with, we, we started as a church plant in Louisville, and then we merged with the historic church in 2001, and they were a little nervous because we, we believed in elders, and uh, they like to use the word pastor, and I just said to them, we're fine with the word pastor, but I said, did you know that there's only one time in the New Testament the church leaders are called pastors? In Ephesians chapter 4, that's the only case. That's a fine word. The most common term is elder. And then the next most common term is overseer. And the last is pastor. Well, are they really the same office? Again, Acts 20. You can look these up later if you want to. Acts 20, verse 17. Paul summons the elders of Ephesus. He gives them a talk in Acts 20, a great, a great passage. He summons the elders of Ephesus. In verse 28, Paul says the Holy Spirit appointed you to be overseers. So same people, right? The elders. The Holy Spirit appointed you as overseers to shepherd, to pastor. Now that's the verb, right? To shepherd and pastor the church of God. So you see in that same verse, right? You see, I mean that same passage, elders, overseers, pastors. And, and we, we see also, we don't have time to look this up either, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul talks about the qualification of elders in verse 5, but in verse 7 he slips over into using the word overseer. Two different words for the same office. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Paul, I mean Peter addresses the elders, and he goes on to say that they have a job of overseeing and pastoring the flock, okay? So, so I'm, I'm arguing elder, overseer, and pastor. That's the same office. My argument is women are prohibited by Scripture from filling that particular office. However, does that mean, sometimes people ask the question this way, 
Can women be in ministry? Of course. Of course. That's a different question, isn't it? Can women minister? Sometimes when they say that, they really mean, can they be a pastor? But I'm trying to, I'm trying to stick with the scriptural words here and the biblical language. All Christians are to be ministering to one another, right? So we do see a number of examples in Scripture of women ministering. We see Miriam in the Old Testament ministering, prophesying. Maybe you remember in Judges chapters 4 and 5, Deborah functioning as a judge and a prophet in Israel. We see Huldah. Do you remember Huldah in the Old Testament? Huldah also served as a prophet in the days of Josiah. They went to Huldah and said, what's God doing in this situation? And Huldah gave them prophecies. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Peter tells us that both your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So both sons and daughters prophesy. In Acts chapter 21, verse 9, we read that Philip's four daughters were prophets or prophetesses. Philip's four daughters prophesied. The spiritual gift of prophecy is given both to men and to women. So do women have ministry gifts? Certainly. You see that women exercise that gift of prophecy both in the Old Covenant and in the New Still, there are different roles for men and women. I I said something about this today. Most of you were here maybe when we talked about marriage. Different roles don't signify inequality, do they? And I gave the example of the priests and the Levites, if you were here. The priests and Levites all had to be from the tribe of Levi and the sons of Aaron, but those who didn't fulfill such an office were not of lesser value or worth. Okay, I've got something here from Genesis, but I'm actually going to talk about tomorrow, so I'm skipping. Happy day. So here we go. Now, let's talk a little bit about the gift of prophecy. What is the nature of the gift of prophecy? That's That's a very important question. If women have the gift of prophecy... How do we describe that gift? What's the nature of it? I do not see the gift of prophecy to be equivalent to preaching. That's a very important point. If I'm wrong there, my case is ruined. Okay? <laughs> because if women can prophesy, and prophesying is preaching, right? Does that makes sense? Even at 3.30 in the afternoon on Saturday? You're with me? Then, then they can clearly be preachers. But, but I see the gift of prophecy to be different from the gift of teaching. And I actually think preaching is the gift of teaching and exhortation combined together. You know, some sermons have more exhortation, application. Some have more teaching, right? Most sermons are a good combination of both, teaching and exhortation. I think that's the gift of preaching. Of course, there can be in prophesying, there can be some teaching, 
and some exhortation. I'm not denying that. But but that is not the gift of prophecy per se. The gift of prophecy, it seems in the New Testament, is fundamentally more spontaneous in nature. So that's important for me. What's my evidence for it? 1 Corinthians 14, you're sitting in a meeting, and Paul says, if a prophecy comes to one person, the other person should sit down, the other person should sit down and let the other person prophesy, and that prophecy came to that person spontaneously. In other words, most preaching, most teaching, at least it should be, prepared, right? Prophecies aren't prepared. I think Agabus's gift of prophecy in the book of Acts functions in the same way. Agabus has two prophecies in the book of Acts. Do you remember? One prophecy is there's going to be a famine. There's going to be a famine as he gets a spontaneous revelation that there'll be a famine. The second prophecy in Acts 21 is that Paul will be bound and handed over to the Romans. He spontaneously receives this prophecy. I think we see another example. It's not called a prophecy, but I think it is, actually. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas and some others are worshiping before the Lord and fasting, and they receive a word, I think, from the Holy Spirit that Paul and Barnabas are to be missionaries. I think that's a prophetic utterance that was given to them spontaneously while they're worshiping. So I think the gift of prophecy is in a spontaneous word, given a spontaneous revelation given to the church. I think that's how it worked in the Old Testament. Deborah sat under whatever tree that was, I forgot, the banyan tree or whatever. She sat under that tree and people went to her and she gave oracles. She spontaneously gave an oracle. She didn't prepare, right? They go to Huldah and ask her what's going on and she tells them. So, so prophecy in a sense, if you understand what I'm saying, Prophecy, in my reading, is more passive than teaching in the sense that you get a revelation that that is given to you at the moment and you pass it on. That's different, I think, than the gift of teaching. I think it's very interesting, therefore, that Gordon Wenham, a well-known Old Testament scholar, Gordon Wenham points out, in the Old Covenant... Women served as prophets, spontaneously giving oracles, but never as priests. The priests were more, the more settled authority, right? The day-to-day life. Never as prophets. I mean, never as priests, but always as prophets. In the New Covenant, women serve as prophets, but never as pastors, elders, elders and overseers, and never as apostles. Well, but don't women have the gift of teaching too? I hope that's a question you've asked yourself while I'm talking. Don't women have the gift of teaching too? Are you saying, are you saying that only men have the gift of teaching? I'm not saying that. I think women do have the gift of teaching too. But I believe when you look at the whole of Scripture... A woman who has a gift of teaching is to exercise that gift to other women. My wife teaches a Bible study every Tuesday to other women. In fact, we have a lot of vital ministries in our church 
that are women to women. In fact, sometimes, sometimes we've said as men, we men have to get our act together a little more. <laughs> the women have a lot of vital ministries going on where they're ministering to each other and we're not doing quite enough. In fact, we, we just introduced this year a men's breakfast to do on, once a month on Saturdays to do a little bit more as men because the women are exercising their gifts in significant ways. Are there any contexts where a woman can teach men? Let's, you know, let's ask another question. Yes, there are. Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18.26, take Apollos aside and instruct him more accurately about the way. Right? Priscilla and Aquila. I think Priscilla talked too. Maybe, it's a little speculative, maybe she talked more. She's named first. So it's not just Aquila was talking and Priscilla was keeping her mouth shut. I think she taught him too. But in my mind, it's significant that this is a private venue. She's not publicly standing before men and women and expositing the word. She is instructing Apollos privately with her husband and teaching him. Furthermore, I understand Colossians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 14.26 to be saying in the gathered community... In community settings, somewhat like a, a, a corporate setting where different people share insights. We, we could do that today, couldn't we? We could gather around and have a Bible study. We could have a Bible study where we're all opening the Bible. And I think both men and women can share in such a context insights. That's a kind of teaching and instruction that takes place amongst the whole body. I think that's quite legitimate. But that is not the same thing as the pastoral office or the regular teaching of men. Beware of reading too much into the situation of Priscilla. Just the other day, I'm revising my Romans commentary, and somebody quoted my 1998 version, and they quoted what I said about a passage that related to women in ministry, and they say, what about Priscilla? <laughs> I mean, they said, Shriner's wrong, because look at Priscilla. And my response is, that's private teaching. I don't, I don't think that argument carries weight. We're talking about a private situation. So beware of making too much of what happened with Priscilla. Yes, and I want to celebrate this, women are commended as co-workers. Euodia and Syntyche, remember them? Philippians 4. Euodia and Syntyche, actually Paul gives them an exhortation to get along. Why does he do that? Not because they're particularly bad Christians, you know. That's very rare that Paul would call anybody out by name in his letter and say, hey, get along. But I think it's because he says Euodia and Syntyche were co-workers, and I think Euodia and Syntyche were significant missionaries in the church. They had a significant evangelistic ministries. So the reason he names them is because they were so respected. Not because they're so bad, right? But they're not getting along. So they were co-workers. They had ministries. Priscilla, in Romans 16, I don't know if you've read Romans 16 lately, but Romans 16 is a most interesting passage. One of the most interesting features, you know, that's mainly a list of names if you've read it lately, 
But one of the most interesting features of that passage is Paul commands many women. He names 26 people. Actually, there's 20, 24 he names and then two people he doesn't name. But 26 people as a whole. And I think, I forget the exact number, seven or nine of them are women. That's a lot out of that many names, especially in a patriarchal world. It was a patriarchal world, but he names a number of women and he commends them for their labor. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis are all commended. And and by the way, Priscilla is named too. I already talked about her, right? Priscilla is named too. But, But these particular women are commended for their labor. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis that, that labor, that, that word for labor, by the way, is used for labor that's tiring and exhausting. And I think they're commended for what? Labor in ministry. So, so it wasn't the case at all that Paul thinks, well, the women just did nothing. No, they, they labored in ministry-type situations. But my argument is they didn't serve as pastors, overseers, and elders. But they were vitally involved in ministry. Did women serve as deacons in the early church? I, don't, I forget what your view is here. I think Kevin and I agree, don't we? Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Shall we just go on? No, we won't go on. I'll say something. We have two verses to rely upon for this. Hardly going to, you know, lead a revolution on the basis of two verses that are disputed. Okay. But Phoebe, I understand Phoebe in Romans 16.1, Paul says she's a diakonos, a diakonon of the church in St. Crayon. What does that mean? Does it just mean she's a servant? It could mean that, a servant without a title. But I agree with many that the way he says it, she's a servant or deacon, I think, of the church in St. Crayon, suggests that she actually had the office, that she served as a deacon. And then 1 Timothy 3.11, maybe I should do this. Maybe you're saying, maybe just once, just open the Bible. Okay, (laughs) I'm doing it once, okay? We're going fast, but here it is. Maybe we'll read this one Bible verse at least. We'll see if we have time for another. Sometimes I am quoting the Bible though, right? It's not... It's not totally bereft of the Bible. Anyway, 1 Timothy 3.11, he's talking about deacons, and he says in verse 11, there, well, what is the, what is this, the English standard version, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So the English standard version does not understand this to be deacons, but wives, right? However, I love the ESV. I think it's wrong here. And is there a footnote there? Do they even have a footnote? They should, they should have a footnote. Maybe they do. I can't. Yeah, yeah, they do have a footnote. Very good. Excellent. We're happy to see that. I think it's not wives, but women. And I think the women are deacons. So I have five arguments. First, it doesn't say in Greek, their wives. The word there is not there. Okay? It just says women. The word women can mean wives. So, yeah, this, this is a possible reading. But you might think in reading this text in Greek, the word there is there, but it's not there. Right? It, 
So if you know Greek, he could have easily put auton. He easily could have put idios. He often does when he talks about wives and other, other passages, you see those terms. But it's not there. It just says women. So that's the first argument. Secondly, he's been talking about male deacons, verse 8. And then uh, verse 11, he suddenly goes to the women. Uh, I, I, and he says, likewise, likewise. I, I think he's, that suggests that he's still talking about the same subject. Men deacons, women deacons. Thirdly, we have qualifications. We have qualifications that are given. The, the qualifications are very similar to the kinds of things that are required of the men. That is, they must be dignified, not slander, sober-minded, faithful in all things. By the way, these lists are very, very compact and short. So I think he's basically saying they must be godly. Fourth, I think this is a very important argument. If it's the wives, why not the wives of the elders? Do you see my point? If it's the wives, surely, surely you would have a section. This is an argument from silence, so take it for what it's worth. But surely you would have a section saying this is what what is required of the wives of the elders. Because the elders have the primary leadership in the church. But he says not a word about it. Why, Why have a section on the wives of the deacons and not the wives of the elders? Especially since the elders have the primary responsibility in preaching and teaching in the church. Do you see but he doesn't say a word about the wives of the elders. Well, why does he include the wives of the deacons? What's my argument? He's not talking about the wives of the deacons. He's talking about women deacons, right? Um, actually, I said five things, but I'm, I'm going I'm to have six. Fifth, one objection to what I'm saying is um, why, why does he interrupt? Why does he interrupt the list and go back to men deacons in verse 12? Why does he interrupt the list? And my argument is, Paul doesn't always write in a way that we'd expect. Paul, Paul can interrupt a flow of thought and insert another thought, right? That's not unusual for him. These are not computer printouts, his letters. Paul surprises us. Sometimes he even uses bad grammar because he gets excited or whatever, for whatever reason. He uses bad grammar. That doesn't say anything about the truthfulness of Scripture, by the way. Grammar, remember, is the invention of high school English teachers. So, but, I, I, you know, that's, that, I'm really joking. I mean, grammar is helpful, but, right, there's no, it's not like God is on high saying, wow, you made a grammatical mistake. It ruins everything. So, my last argument, my last argument is not from the Bible, but it's from a Roman uh, uh, governor uh, named Pliny. Pliny, I got to be really brief on this, but Pliny wrote the emperor Trajan in the 100s. Trajan was the Roman emperor, and he basically said, it's a very interesting thing, I don't know if you've ever read it, but he basically said, what do I do with these Christians? And and basically he says to Trajan, if they they, um, agree to curse Christ and offer to make an offering to the genius of Caesar, I let them live. But if they don't curse Christ, I kill them. And Trajan says, yeah, that's, that's the thing to do. But that, that's, the point I'm making here is Pliny mentions in this letter, he mentions female ministri in Latin. 
female, not female Christians, but female ministry. Well, the, you, you can hear this in English, right? The Latin word minister is a translation of the Greek word deacon. We get our word minister from the Latin, which comes from the Greek word. It's actually, in Greek, the word for deacon is diakonos. You can hear it, right? So that Latin word minister is just another way of saying deacon. And he says, there's female deacons. So that doesn't prove that's the right interpretation, right? But very early, very early in the history of the church, you see a Roman official writing about women deacons, women ministers. Now, does that contradict... Does that contradict, if women can serve as deacons, does that contradict the notion that they can't serve as pastors, overseers, and elders? Absolutely not. Because there are two things said about elders that are not true of deacons. What are those two things? Elders elders are to be teachers and leaders. Teachers and leaders. So, we, we, elders, we read in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus as well, elders are to be apt to teach. You know, if you're going to be an elder, you have to have a teaching gift. And, or 1 Timothy 5, 17, they're to labor in the preaching and teaching. And, and Titus, Titus 1, verse 9 says this about the elders, that they are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders have to have the ability to be able to instruct in the sound doctrine, but not just that, but also to show why someone who teaches falsely is an heir. So elders are to have a particular ability in, in, in teaching. Also... Elders are to lead, rule well, manage, manage the church. So de- the de- diaconal ministry is a service ministry. It's not a leading ministry. In our church, we have deacons who prepare the Lord's Supper. We have deacons of media. We have deacons of ushers. We have a, a deacon of hospitality. We have, um, you know, I'm trying to think of all the deacons we have. Uh, we have deacons of building maintenance, right? We have deacons of finance. They all serve our church in various ways. The way we set it up with deacons is any diaconal office we can do away with. Our deacons never meet together as a whole because really the deacons of sound they don't want to meet with the deacons of ushering because they, they're doing completely different things, right? It's a pretty irrelevant meeting unless we just meet to encourage the deacons all together. But in functionally, they're just doing various tasks. That's a serving ministry. So for women to serve as deacons does not contradict at all. What does 1 Timothy 2.12 say? I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Are you with me? The two things that are said about elders that are not said about deacons is elders are to teach and rule. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So the two things that distinguish elders from deacons are the two things that are prohibited for women. 
Okay. Junior. What about junior? In Romans 16, 7. Maybe you've never thought of junior, but probably most of you have. Romans 16, 7. Maybe we should turn there really quickly. That's an important verse. We read there that... um, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known. Here's the SV. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, let me say something about Junia. First, Junia is a woman. (laughs) You think, okay, this is really basic. But actually, that's been debated in the history of interpretation, whether Junia was a woman. Almost all agree today that Junia was a woman. If you want to ask me a question about that, I'm happy to answer it. But there's another issue here. The ESV translates that they are well known to the apostles. But many translations say they are outstanding among the apostles. Do you hear the difference? At 5 to 4 on Saturday afternoon? You know? We're getting... They are outstanding among the apostles, which means that Andronicus and Junia, they were probably a married couple, by the way, Andronicus and Junia were outstanding apostles. Okay? If they're outstanding among the apostles, that means Andronicus and Junia were apostles. That's another translation. They're right now going on in New Testament studies, there are heavy articles being written on which of these translations is right. Like I said, I'm working on Romans right now. I probably read six to seven articles, maybe eight articles on this issue, sometimes like 20 pages. So people really get into it. Because if Junia functioned as an apostle, the argument is, then women can do everything. If a woman was an apostle, surely she can be a pastor, you see? So people are going to naturally invest a lot in this verse. But the ESV says, well known to the apostles. If the ESV is right, they weren't apostles at all, right? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult question. I slightly incline to the interpretation that Andronicus and Junia were apostles. So again, I disagree with the ESV, like I did on the deacon passage. I think it's saying... I think it's saying that Andronicus and Junia, as a, as a married couple together, were outstanding among the apostles. Not that they were well known in the eyes of the apostles. However, however, I am not convinced at all that that means that they served as apostles in the same way as Paul and the Twelve. I don't, I don't think the word apostle is a technical term. I think the word apostle simply means here, context is king. I think apostle simply means here they served as missionaries, that they were a missionary couple. And I, yeah, there's a Roman Catholic scholar named Rudolf Schnackenberg and a German New Testament scholar named Ernest Kaseman. Neither of them are evangelicals, but they both agree this couple was a missionary couple. And, and Kaseman says, no evangelical, Kaseman says, surely in the patriarchal world, Junia functioned as a missionary, particularly among the women. I think that's almost certainly true. That they all, Paul is not saying here they're apostles in the sense of, 
of, of, of himself and the 12, he's saying this is a missionary couple. Apostle means one who is sent. So yes, yes, women can serve as missionaries. No to eldership. Oh, the time, time is passing. Why is it always passing when I'm speaking? What a ridiculous question, right? Anyway, some arguments that are used for women serving as pastors, elders, and overseers are very bad arguments, such as, such as Jesus afford, appeared first to women when he was raised from the dead. That's true that he did first appear to women, like Mary Magdalene. But that is no argument that women can serve as pastors, is it? That conclusion certainly doesn't follow. That was quite remarkable since women weren't considered to be reliable witnesses. So that's a very interesting fact in and of itself and something worth talking about. But it hardly proves that women can function as elders, overseers, and pastors. Also, it's pointed out that sometimes the, the, the church met in, uh, in a woman's house. Chloe, perhaps, perhaps Lydia. And some people argue from that, if the church met in the woman's house, she must be the leader. She must be the pastor. But that is hardly clear, isn't it? The church met, the early church met, we know, in the house of John Mark's mom. Acts 12, you know, read about it. What house did they meet in? Mark, I think the author of the gospel, Mark, they met in his mom's house. She was not the pastor. <laughs> I don't think so. Not with, not with Peter and James and John and the other apostles there. I think it's quite unlikely. That doesn't follow. In Titus chapter 2, some people say, oh, the older women were women elders. I mean, this is actually said, but actually read the passage very carefully. The older women are to instruct the younger women. He's very clear in that passage. Nothing about the women functioning as pastors in the congregation. Now, I have some material here on husbands and wives, which I think support a traditional complementarian view. But I already talked about that this morning, right? I have, some, I have some things to say here about slavery, but I already talked about that this morning. So I'm just skipping that. Why well, I don't think the argument from slavery works. So now I have two things less, left to do. Three things, three passages left. 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, we, we're surveying. I'm flying, right? So 1 Timothy Chapter 2, happy to take any questions, but 1 Timothy chapter 2, maybe I'll just read it really quickly and make comments. Famous last words, I'm going to do this quickly, but I am. I'm trying to say to myself, I'm going to do it quickly. Here we go. Let a woman learn, 1 Timothy 2.11, quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Is that a cultural word? Is that a word limited to the first century? Here's here's the egalitarian argument. Yes, that command doesn't apply to us today. Because why was the command given? Because the women were uneducated. And because the women were promulgating the false teaching, okay? I'm open to that. The limitation is given because the women were uneducated. But now they're educated, right? So now they can do it. 
and they were purveying the false teaching. Okay, that, those are interesting arguments. Why don't I believe that's right? Because of the next verse. Because of the text. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because, here it comes, for the women are uneducated. No, he doesn't say that. He could say that, right? That'd be easy to say. The women need education. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because they're spreading the false teaching. That's not what he says. What does he say? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. He appeals to the order of creation. That is fun. That's the most important argument. He appeals to the order of creation. Adam was formed first and then Eve. He doesn't appeal to the fall. He doesn't say the woman sinned first. Not, now verse 14 is different, isn't it? Adam, Eve was deceived and not Adam. But the first argument doesn't appeal to the fall, but to good creation. And Paul sees, Paul sees, doesn't he, in the order of creation, something significant. He's thinking of Genesis 2, isn't he? And Paul's reading that narrative, and he spies significance in the order. Men and women are both equally made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But when, the, when you get the zoom-in account of Genesis 2, there's an order. First Adam, then Eve from his rib. And Paul says, that tells us something about the relationship between men and women, doesn't he? That tells us that a woman ought not to teach and exercise authority over a man. So I take it this is a transcultural command in verse 12 because he appeals to God's good creation. That's fundamental to me. I've heard people say, well, wait a minute, that's a really bad argument. Animals were made first. Should animals be our teachers? What's the response to that? I've heard people even say, at a school I taught at, an evangelical, Paul's argument's terrible here. Well, that's just something about that person's view of the authority of Scripture, right? Well, Paul's argument's terrible. Secondly, but what, what do I want to say? Uh, hello, I think Paul knew the difference, um, as amazing as it may sound, between human beings and animals, Right? Human beings, if you read Genesis pretty carefully, are the crown of creation. The only ones made in the Imago Dei. The only ones made in the image of God. Maybe Paul spied that when he read it, amazingly enough, right? And Paul, Paul, Paul read the story carefully, and he says it's significant that man was created first and then Eve. So what about accepting and being open to what Paul himself teaches us on this? So I think it's clear. Verse, verse 14 is a very controversial verse about woman being deceived. Um, I'm just going to say something quickly. I think actually Paul's argument here, this is very disputed. There are other interpretations. My view doesn't depend upon my reading of verse 14. But the way I read verse 14, I think his point is that Satan subverted, subverted male leadership by, by uh, going to Eve and not Adam in the garden. In other words, I think it's the same point. But my time is really running out. So i got to go to 
I've got to go to... Um, well, let me say something else about First uh, Timothy 2 in my notes. I just got to say this. Some people say, some people say that Ephesus, that the reason, because First Timothy is written to Ephesus, so some people say the reason Paul wrote this is because Ephesus was such a feminist city. In a book I edited uh, with uh, Andreas Kostenberger, which if you all go out and buy it today, it may become a bestseller, um, called Women in the Church. Stephen Baugh, we have, this book has come out in three editions. Stephen Baugh has a, a good essay, probably by the third edition because it's the simplest to understand. He's, he's redone his essay every time. But Stephen Baugh argues, I think very persuasively, Ephesus was no more feminist than any other city in the Greco-Roman world. I think that's a very common sense observation, but the nice thing is Stephen has spent his life studying this, right? So this whole notion, yeah, feminist, uh, yeah, Ephesus was a really feminist city, and that's why Paul says that. It's really groundless. I think Baal rightly shows us. Well, what about 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 11? 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says it's not permitted for a woman, woman to speak in church, but it's shameful. Let them ask their husbands at home. Okay, I'm just paraphrasing that. What, is, what does that verse mean? He says the, women are to be, the wives are to be submissive. I think that's the principle. The principle is wives are to be submissive. I believe what Paul's saying in that passage, the women were in the assembly speaking rebelliously and questioning the leadership of the leaders and their husbands. And so, this is very quick, I don't think this is an absolute prohibition for women to speak in the assembly at all, but he is calling on the women to be submissive, okay? That's 1 Corinthians 14. Last word now, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is about a woman wearing a shawl on her head. I think a woman wearing a shawl on her head signifies male headship. Verse 3, man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ, right? Christ is the head of man. We see in that verse. The woman is to wear a shawl. It, her wearing of a shawl reflects male headship. When she wears that shawl, she can pray and prophesy in the assembly. Not teach, though, right? But pray and prophesy in the assembly. Because then when she prays and prophesies in the assembly, I take that in the church, she reflects her submission to the male leadership of the church. Paul even says she has to do this because of the angels. Whatever that means, I think it means it's a transcultural word. So, another complex issue, therefore should women be wearing shawls today? By the way, I was in a church last week in Laurel, Mississippi, and some of the women did. I understand, I understand why. I would argue, again, this is a complex issue. I think the principle of the passage is... Female submission to the male leadership of the church. I would argue that the wearing of the shawl is a cultural expression of that principle. In other words, nobody today, nobody today, I think in the Greco-Roman world, they understood the wearing of a shawl to signify your relationship to your husband and to the leadership of the church. 
I would argue nobody today reads it that way. The principle still stands. The principle is female submission to the leadership of the church. No, no female pastors, overseers, and elders. But that cultural expression isn't demanded today. Some conservatives want to say to me, well, I think it is. And I say, if you, in your conscience, you think it is, then, then, then you should go ahead and wear the shawl, right? If you think that still applies today. But I, but I want to give two examples where I think we have a word of God, but the cultural expression of that word changes. Here are the two, and then I'm done. Sorry I went so long. But, but I, honestly, I went really fast. I'm just, I'm just commending myself for a moment. So I went really fast. Okay, two things. Uh, the holy kiss, the holy kiss, first of all. None of you, not one of you gave me a holy kiss. And the Bible says we ought to greet each other with a holy kiss. I didn't get one here. So um, are we disobeying the Bible here at Karis? I don't think so. I don't think so. Is, is, is it still the word of God for us when it says give each other a holy kiss? Of course it's still the word of God for us. But that command, what does it mean? Greet each other with warm affection. How you do that differs from culture to culture, doesn't it? Are we disobeying that command here? I don't think so. I think that expresses itself differently. In the British culture, I was in Wales, you know, last April. Uh, you know, it's that culture, they're friendly, but... Not, they're not going to give you a holy kiss. I had a student, I don't know if they still do, do this, or maybe it's just some parts of Argentina. She said in Argentina, they do. They give a holy kiss. Different cultures express warm greetings in different ways. Are they, you're still obeying that command if we give each other a warm handshake or a hug, right? Second example. Paul says if you have stomach aches, be sure and drink wine. Doesn't he? I don't think we're disobeying that command if you take Pepto-Bismol, right? Or whatever, Prilosec, Prevacid, whatever people do, you know? Well, isn't that the point of the passage? There's a cultural expression of it. Drink wine. Of course, it's fine to drink wine if that helps your stomach aches, right? But the cultural expression of that command differs. I would argue that the same is true with 1 Corinthians 11. So what I've argued here... Today, very quickly, looking at the whole, women have many significant ministries which we celebrate as missionaries, and, in, and, and there's many other venues in which they can serve as deacons, but the church office of pastor, overseer, and elder seer is limited to men because men have a particular responsibility to teach and to exercise authority over a man. a beautiful song We had a dream the whole world would sing along And we would be happy as we danced on the edge of the 